we're living that exciting lockdown life and it hasn't been particularly exciting so far, but I'm expecting that to change now. So <laughs> no pressure. No pressure. Right. I will, uh, I will try and kick us into gear. Welcome to List Envy, where each week I work with a guest to build a top five list on a topic they choose. My name's Mark Stedman, and this week's guest is Bristol-based activist Liam Barrington-Bush. Liam helps organisations think uh, think more like people and has loads and loads of real-world experience of how people can govern themselves, build their own systems, uh, and get closer to achieving what they want without having those systems handed down to them, if that makes sense. We'll talk um, a lot about protests in this episode, which was recorded just before Christmas 2020. In January 2021, we're looking over at the US, um, where largely peaceful people have endured illegitimate protests from other people who have been told for the last four years that uh, they can get what they want by knocking shit over. So while those events obviously weren't on our minds then when we recorded the episode, uh, I wanted to um, draw the distinction now between protesting for real change versus screaming into someone's face because you're not getting uh, what you decided you were entitled to. I don't think this episode needs a trigger warning um, because it's actually one of the most positive, um, enlightening and thought-provoking discussions uh, I've been lucky enough to have on List Envy. But I didn't think it was sensible to not acknowledge the red, white and blue elephant in the room. Uh, and with what is probably my most uh, sophisticated and only US political joke, sort of, um, let's get into my chat with Liam, uh, which started... Predictably enough, with me asking what made anarchism something he wanted to study. I guess on the one hand, it came from years of disillusionment with pretty much every political system I've ever come into contact with. Uh, and on the other hand, it came from a, a bunch of experiences of doing various kinds of activism and community organizing, uh, where I discovered that people were capable of really remarkable things if they weren't being told what to do. <laughs> something you study or is it something you sort of you come to and you understand and because if you know it's so grassroots like is is it something that the information and knowledge is passed down or you do do you discover things along the way i mean i think it's always going to be some of both i tend to be more of a experiential learner like i i tend to get more from doing things than from reading things but you know like a good conversation like something that does capture the learning that has happened somewhere else is always always valuable as well and so like like i think i think that there's there's that visceral level of learning that i think usually comes a lot more from from being in something and doing something and experiencing something um but then there's also the sort of the, the sort of intellectual framework you can kind of build up around those experiences that can sometimes be like where reading like learning from other sources that you haven't directly experienced has been a big thing for me where do you think um the internet has played into um sort of i guess modern stories of of civil disobedience civil unrest uh, and you know the, these kinds of things what has the internet given us enabled us or like where has it made life difficult good questions um i i think the where it's enabled it is that stories get can spread and the things that we don't get told day to day have a chance to to be told and to reach audiences thousands of miles away from 
from wherever the, they have happened. Uh, and so I've, some of the things I'm sure we'll talk about today have happened in lots of places all over the world, some of which I've been, some of which I haven't. Um, but a lot of, in, in essence, I've learned about a number of them because of the internet. Um, I think the pitfalls of it are probably the the growth of algorithm-based social media and the kind of like the likelihood that people who are actively interested in those things are going to be most likely to be the ones who find out about them rather than people who are say like struggling with their their company going bust and want to know what they can do about it in one part of the world and not necessarily having any connection to people in a totally different part of the world who've come up with a amazing collective solution to that. Uh, so, so I think there's that way that we get siloed into our pre-existing interests uh, through the way the internet has shifted over the last decade or so, uh, which I think can mean that the information isn't getting to places that it would often be quite useful and might reach if our sort of, digital menu wasn't being decided by an algorithm yes it's it's not something that can really spread through facebook um because you're not going to get an anarchist movement paying 15 dollars to boost a post (laughs) yeah yeah exactly and even if even if it did it would still be boosting it towards the the facebook algorithm that would suggest that the people who are already interested in talking about anarchism are the ones who are most likely to, to want to see that rather than someone who might just be struggling with one or another issue that anarchism might be one of many, like what one way of potentially exploring. I, I like the way you describe this, by the way, as, as um, moments that people took things over together. Um, but to, Shorten that just a little bit. What is your number one moment of anarchy? <laughs> uh, I think this is one of those ones where I go back and forth between and what you say on the like intellectual sort of book reading kind of understandings and the where places I've been and connected with. I think for this one, I will opt for the Argentine uh, occupied factory movement that kicked off in the early 2000s. Um, the Argentine economy had been plummeting tons of businesses just packed up and packed up and left and left a bunch of factories initially, but a whole range of workplaces just sitting empty. Uh, and initially a few and gradually many, many, many workplaces just got taken over by their former employees and run collectively and often run in a way that meant they were producing much more useful things than what they had been doing under capitalist bosses uh, and developed a whole set series of wider social benefits, environmental benefits uh, in the process of becoming collectivized by the people who are working in them. So can you, can you tell me a little bit of the, um, of, of, of the, the history of this? Yeah. So like I said, like in the early 2000s, the Argentine economy completely collapsed backstory there around, IMF debts and like the imposition of kind of Western Western governments uh, uh, development models that just clearly didn't work pre the the austerity kind of um, thing that we saw sweep across Europe because that was more sort of twenty tens and onwards. Yeah, so this is more two thousand one, uh, two thousand two kind of era, and um, basically, yeah, the economy tanked and capital fled as the as is the jargon of that kind of thing, which basically means a bunch of bosses stuff as much cash into a suitcase as they can and get the hell out. Uh, and so all of a sudden, all these workers were like, do we, do we still have jobs? Uh, and many of them, like I said, it started gradually and grew to the point where there's sort of 
over 400 of these kind of reoccupied workplaces in, in Argentina now, pr primarily in Buenos Aires. Uh, but they started taking them over and saying like, what, we, why do we need bosses in the first place? What, what if we just did this ourselves and tried to figure it out ourselves? And, uh, we're often remarkably successful at that, uh, countering all the logic that we hear about why we need to hire well-paid people with MBAs in order to manage any kind of anything more complex than making a sandwich kind of thing. Uh, and groups of workers came together and had democratic assemblies in their workplace, decided what they needed to do in order to, to do whatever it was that they were doing, uh, often completely changing the output of the factories or the workplaces themselves to be more aligned with say like worker health and safety or environmental impact or what are the things that the community around them actually needs uh asking the kinds of questions that the sort of the macro market forces of capitalism don't tend to ask <laughs> or if they do they tend to s skim over them uh, and so often you saw workplaces just completely changing what they do in a way that was yeah more aligned with workers not having to use toxic chemicals or the local environment not being polluted by smog from from the factory uh or actually like addressing a local need of some kind uh, and then a step beyond that becoming sort of community hubs where a whole range of other things were starting to happen. So like they may have linked up with other groups that had a similar ethos that were saying, we want to grow food together and provide food for, for our local area. And the factory says, okay, we're not using this whole chunk of land that we have here. So might as well start to use that for a collective food growing program. Uh, that's just run by people in the community. Uh, it may have been that like an alternative community education program started up where like, young kids in the neighborhood were able to go to that workplace and learn what the workers are doing so they could end up getting the next jobs um, that that might come up in that space or in similar spaces going forward. Uh, it might have been that they start running neighborhood assemblies out of those, those workplaces so people in the community can come together and discuss like all the boring bits and pieces that make a community work from trash collection to dealing with community safety to any number of other things. But basically each of the many, many of these workplaces became a kind of hub where a whole range of different overlapping social, political, environmental uh, issues all started to be addressed together. Um, and then you kind of take a step beyond that and you start to see that like initially dozens, then hundreds of these groups are forming in, along a similar ethos all over initially the city and across the country in Argentina, where you have hundreds of different hubs like this emerging that are all sort of becoming these, these remarkable places where self-organization is addressing a vast array of local needs. Uh, they're all based around the specifics of that area and what people need and what people have to give in those areas. But they're also then networking with each other and connecting with each other. So then you kind of end up with this situation where you're getting this whole kind of alternative infrastructure to what the state would traditionally offer in terms of different kinds of social services to what the market would traditionally offer in terms of economic input and generation. Uh, that are connected up with each other. So a new occupation emerges in a workplace in one neighborhood. So one of the more uh, pre-existing ones hears about it and says, we'll pay you up front for your first batch of whatever you make uh, to help you get off the ground, to help you buy raw materials. We'll supply some of those materials if we have them at a discounted rate to help get you going. Uh, and so there's this kind of shared ethos where you have like these hundreds of different 
businesses, companies that range from sort of like ceramics factories to a hospital, to a hotel, to a chocolate factory, to a print shop, like all of these different kinds of things that are uh, supporting one another in in various practical ways. It might be economically, like with contracts or materials. It might be offering them some training in this is how we do consensus process uh, when we are like working, trying to make decisions together as a team uh, collectively when we've been used to being told what to do by bosses before. Uh, so it's like skill shares, but it's, it's also economic input, but there's a sense of solidarity where these groups are essentially really localized hubs that are addressing this vast array of things that people are experiencing and need in their communities, but are also part of this wider network. That's essentially like, creating a whole alternative to both the market and the state in a lot of the ways that we've been told they they just are the only way to organize those aspects of our lives to me that feels like the the dream <laughs> <laughs> yeah if i'm honest like i i remember being sort of being a bit younger and a bit more sort of i don't know whether it was more cynical or or, or less cynical i'm not sure but i i kind of uh, I kind of came across what might be determined a sort of self-governance idea um, when I was speaking to a friend about how frustrating I, I found it that the way our political system worked, and this is a little bit sort of what we might call in the UK like A-level psychology, but A-level pol- uh, politics, the idea that you have to pick a side rather than actually be able to vote on the principles that you believe in. You can't vote for individual principles and say, well, for this, I want this person in charge for this particular thing on this environment, you know, on environment issues, I believe this, whereas on fiscal issues, I believe this, you have to just, or or not have to, but you are encouraged uh, and told that you have to pick one of certainly now like two sides. Mm. And this, I, I love this idea. And I've, I've over the years become to be a little bit sneery of the idea of libertarianism because it, it, it can often be, I think aligned with I think things that are perhaps less savory. It's um, a very delicate way of putting it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I've got no love for it, but the the idea of small government in a sort of top down sense versus this self governance thing feels to me like listening and and hearing you as I'm sat here, it feels beautiful. It feels mm. um, the, the 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 whole society works to. Uh, to better itself and to feed itself and to uh, take care of what it of what it needs because the the big argument that I always will always say why you are wrong about libertarianism or why you are wrong about uh, you you know people um, about um, people who have this problem against big government is you need a social safety net and so what you're talking about doesn't diminish that it says well the the society that we're forming decides how to um, create that social safety net so that the people who can't work for whatever reasons or who need extra care um, through no fault of their own, just through genetics or through whoever, our community takes care of them. That's built into how we work and how we operate. And that's one of the core differences, I think, between sort of what like often right libertarianism or like anarchists, like, or, or yeah, a more sort of that sense of not just individual uh, not just the individualism of libertarianism, but a sense that we are best at taking care of each other when we have the individual freedoms to find the best ways of doing that together, rather than just everyone for themselves, free for all. 
kind of thing. Yeah, and it made me think about as you were talking. I, I I'm interested now in this idea of the misrepresentation or the misunderstanding that anarchy has, as people think of anarchy as chaos. Uh, I think you know those who don't who haven't studied it, and I absolutely count myself uh, among them. I, this is not something I've studied, but I, I really think that's interesting. And I also wonder to what extent that is perhaps a deliberate uh, mislabeling um, that it, it helps other people's causes to say, Oh, you, when you say anarchy, well, that's just chaos. That's looting and rioting in the streets. And no, that's not what this is. Mm. Um, and it, it does feel like that, that could be, if not a deliberate piece of misinformation, but certainly something that certain sides probably not, unhappy if that idea gets perpetrated because it helps their cause. Yeah, broadly. I mean, I think every other political system broadly is threatened by anarchism in some form or another, you know, like where whoever you decide should have the power, whether that's like a fascist regime, communist regime, like capitalist, like free market based approaches, like anarchism doesn't really have a lot of time for any of them. (laughs) And so like there's an element to which it it strips away the legitimacy of all the other systems when you start to see any elements of it working uh, because you see that the sort of the mythology of we need a great leader, we need someone in charge, we need someone telling people what to do in order to avoid total chaos, in order to avoid total breakdown, social breakdown of one form or another. When you see the experiences, experience the experiences where people have discovered otherwise, um, a lot of a lot of sort of dominoes start to fall after that you know and there is a i think generally unspoken and may probably often unconscious uh way in which power is committed to keeping us from realizing those kinds of things because like i mean yeah it's it is very important for any form of power to hold some form of legitimacy or some form of like what what is the means through which it exercises that power and like whether that's like the consent of the people whether that's like the might of the military <laughs> like just discrediting another option mm, absolutely in the same way that religion in the same way that um catholicism spread uh, in some part by rolling over certain religious traditions and either you know picking some and saying yeah we'll have some of that or by ridiculing them and, and then saying well that is is satan worship and that is heresy um is basically discrediting you know uh, what what already exists so that you can just brush it off as being sort of irrelevant or just you know don't 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 you worry your pretty little head about that particular thing we've got you covered We're, we are you know, we are your, your paternal uh, carers. Yeah, and I think the other piece that's interesting in what you're saying is the, the co-optation of the elements that work as well. And I think that's all, also been a, one of the histories of anarchism that's often not uh, not talked about is that, like, David Graeber, who recently passed away, who's an anarchist academic, um, uh, talked a lot about the early days of American democracy and that anarchism and democracy were sort of used as interchangeable terms almost uh in some of those days and it was it was basically some of the founding fathers the in the american constitution would basically were as dismissive uh or ridiculing of either idea democracy or anarchism uh and often used them quite interchangeably and it was only the sort of the creation of sort of representative democracy the idea that you can vote for somebody to to 
represent your interests far away, basically, that democracy started to become one of the core core phrases used by those in, in, in that space. And it was basically taking the most benign elements of anarchism, the concept uh, or, or what was often described just as democracy at the time of people being involved in the things that affect them um, and sort of filing their teeth down quite a lot. Like what, what is the most benign version of this that we can hold on to? And that's sort of where a lot of representative, a lot of the modern ideas of representative democracy grew from was, was a recognition that people want, had that thirst to be, involved in the things that affect them surprisingly uh and trying to find the 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 version that still concentrated the most power with the people who were used to having it well this is um oh god i could i could go on but we've we've still got lots more um items on 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 our list here Um, (laughs) i think it's your turn now isn't it it is um and i'm gonna go and i'm gonna mispronounce most of the words in in the things that i'm gonna say throughout the uh the rest of the uh the discussion, so we'll just take that as read. Um, but I'm going to go for the Indignados movement, um, which is uh, an anti-austerity uh, movement in Spain. This is not my number one, but I think it dovetails kind of nicely with what you um, what you were describing in in Argentina. This is um, following the 2011 um, economic crisis. It was over 20% um, unemployment. And so a bunch of bloggers uh, wrote a manifesto called uh, Real Democracy Now, uh, which were calling for a demonstration. And as a result, thousands uh, of people responded and they set up camps um, in a square in Madrid. Uh, they refused to leave, um, inspired, I think, in, in part by the uh, Egyptians in, uh, in Tahrir Square. They, um, it then turned into a political movement um, that spanned uh conservatism and and progressivism so you know again i think kind of touches on on, on what we're what we've been talking about and and out of it was born the um P- uh, pemedos uh movement and I, def- I i did look up the pronunciation of that and i've forgotten it which is spanish we can uh the far left anti-austerity party uh that took third place in the 2016 general election and um and is still uh, an ongoing story uh now and um yeah i thought that was um I thought that was interesting. Yeah, no, the, the Indignados or the Quince MA movement is sometimes described as well, um, was one of those really key. There's a sort of set of overlapping narratives all over the world that like, I think people have kind of done some, his, like been able to trace in a lot of ways back to the Zapatistas in 1994 in Mexico, which we may touch on later. Uh, but um that like that was that was sort of the big moment for Europe connecting in with this decentralized, very grassroots kind of kind of politics. Uh, that there was a sort of there are a few hallmarks of some of these movements, like that collective occupation of space and taking over what would be either public quote unquote or private land, and like turning it into something that is actually useful for people in the area, uh, creating space where direct democracy can play out um being able to like using consensus processes one another one of these like the idea that like decisions are made not when 51 percent of people agree on something and tell the other 49 percent to sort off but when people actually come together and say like what what do we want to create together and how do we find ways to make it work 
that can work for everybody who's here. Even if it's not going to be everybody's first choice, there's going to be compromise, but there's also going to be that collective process of building on each other's ideas, making them better through through challenging each other and being able to find the ways in which you start with this proposal, someone brings this different proposal, you find some things that actually can work from both of them together and come up with a better answer. And that's the kind of politics that's so often lost in the sort of majority rule model that is at the core of so much of representative democracy. And like the indignados were like really a, a key piece of like manifesting some of that in, in Europe in the last like 10, 15 years. So what's your number two? Uh, I'm going to go for my number two uh, is the People's Uprising in Oaxaca, Mexico in 2006. So sticking with the Latin American theme, uh, I live actually lived in Oaxaca for about a year and a half uh, in 2012-13. But in 2006, it started off with a teacher strike. and the state government decided to get really aggressive about it and drop tear gas from helicopters on a on a bunch of protesting teachers in the town square and the rest of the city was like we're a little bit annoyed by these protests but we're really not into the idea of you tear gassing the hell out of our teachers and just everybody just flooded out into the streets, apparently, like this, the way the stories, and I've talked to a lot of people who are involved in this at different points. Um, and they kicked out the whole government, basically, the state government. So Oaxaca is a city of about a half a million people in the, in one of the southern states of Mexico. Oaxaca is the name of the city and the state. Uh, they kicked out the whole state government. Uh, they kicked out the police force, the like military forces that were there. And blockaded every road all around the periphery of the city. Uh, every community that had an inroad basically built blockades to keep keep the, the military out um, and started holding twice a day community assemblies in the town square uh, and basically came up with solutions to pretty much everything that you'd need to run a city of half a million people relatively quickly. <laughs> uh and like, cause they didn't like basically all of public infrastructure disappeared with like, with when they kicked the government out. And so they figured out everything from like collective clinics for public health care to, to, uh, trash collection to food distribution. Like again, one, like with Argentina, like all these functions that we either associate, like the state has to do this or the free market has to do this. And they basically highlighted that that people coming together in their towns their city center every day could figure a lot of these things out but i think what was even more interesting and again this ties a bit to the sort of the networks idea that we talked about with the argentine example is that those 250 barricades all around the periphery of the city each became their own little hyper local democracy hubs (laughs) that like they were a blockade built out of cars or scrap rubble, whatever it might be. Um, but they were also the places where the immediate neighborhood would come together and they would be there to defend each other if like a group of paramilitaries tried to roll in, but they would also be there to decide together what they needed, like what's food supply in, in our neighborhood, like uh, like uh, the garbage has been piling up for ages. Who's going to sort it out? <laughs> uh, and then they would send representatives from their barricade down to those square, those square, that assembly in the square, main town square every day. And so uh, you had this kind of 
again, like hyper-local, things were very based in the immediate area people were living in. They were coming up with ways to to address the things they needed. They would go engage with this sort of wider system. They would send some representatives down. But sometimes they would take the decisions that would come from the center. Sometimes they wouldn't. They'd be like, okay, what you've done for trash collection isn't what we need in our neighborhood because we've got a system working already. Uh, But... And then there's sort of another layer to all of this, which is this, like, the way media was used during all this. So um, there was initially some pirate radio stations, essentially, that became the communication channels uh, between these 250 different little neighborhood democratic barricades. (laughs) Um, And they would share information and say, okay, like there's been a report of an attack on this one. Anyone who can get down there and support, that would be like, they, they, they need some backup. It could be like food distribution is struggling in this part of the city. Let's make sure we get some more next time a load of things is coming in from a farm. Let's make sure it's going there. And so you kind of had these like community radio stations that, that became the coordination tools for all of these different hyper-local spaces where people were organizing the the ins and outs of their lives. Some of those decisions that became bigger than the neighborhood would go to the central, like to to the assembly in the town square where they were using consensus process together every day, figuring out any bigger, wider ranging issues than the immediate neighborhoods. Um, I guess the last really notable thing about the Oaxaca one was there was corporate controlled media that was sort of broadcasting out that everything was just chaos and all terrible in Oaxaca to the rest of the country at that stage. And initially, one of the the town center assemblies, a group of women came together and said, we're tired of seeing this propaganda being sent out to the, the world. Uh, what are we going to do about it? They decided to march on the big TV station and say, we want one hour of your broadcast time in order to tell our side of this story. And the broadcasters said, No. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so then this group of a few hundred women said, all right, get out. We're taking over. <laughs> and, uh, and I'll raise you a yes. <laughs> yeah. And so they basically kicked out all of the professional staff of the TV station and took learned how to use all the, like, it, I gather it was quite chaos initially, but they managed to figure out how to make the, make the equipment work. And like got it started and started telling their own stories. And it became like, then all of a sudden they had their own channels available to d- distribute it to it. About two weeks later, some someone from the t- company that owned the TV station sent someone in who basically poured acid across all the control panels to destroy the whole station. That night that that happened, the community came together in the, in the assembly and took over all of the radio stations in the city overnight that day. I think it was 14 different ra- like c- corporate radio stations. And they're like, well, you've taken the TV away from us, but we've got 14 radio stations now, so we can keep communicating with each other as to what's going on. And it sort of became like the dem- democratization of the, of the channels of communication that allowed both more coordination and a more accurate portrayal of what was going on. So others might actually hear the story of what was happening at that point. Incredible. Um, God, I did, whoa. It's just um, stirring. I think is, uh, is the word. It's got me all fired up. Um, <laughs> all right. So for, for mine, I'm going to go with, ooh, I think let's go to the, it feels maybe tangential. Uh, this is the singing revolution. Okay. Um, which uh, b- began um, 
in Estonia, uh, Latvia and Lithuania, um, which wanted to gain independence uh, from Russia. So this is uh, uh, from the USSR. So this is from 1986 uh, to 91. Um, And uh, so... During that time, or I think just just before the the protests began as a sort of lead up, Russia had relaxed uh, their laws on free speech, which was part of the uh, the issue that that was been having in, in the Cold War. Um, and uh, but that it, they, they did that in the in the hopes of sort of quelling more unrest, and it didn't work. Um, so uh, in uh, in Estonia, um, there was uh, a lot of fear and anger over the dumping of phosphorite uh in one of the uh one of the counties there they were just uh offloading um this you know uh rock which i think is uh i think is radioactive if i'm not entirely sure but it was a huge um they they were worried that it was going to have huge environmental uh, consequences as a result of that uh, and so were gathering uh, together and singing sort of national um pro or you know local protest songs um and the the research that i was i was digging into this um speaking to dr internet um there's just this this you know phenomenal list of of, of songs um and and it, it spanned you know these these uh, sort of baltic uh, baltic countries and lasted over four years uh with uh, you know various protests and and uh, acts of defiance and then um speaking uh, quoting directly from dr internet um in 1991 uh, a soviet tanks attempted to stop the progress towards independence the supreme soviet of estonia together with the congress of estonia proclaimed the restoration of the independent state of Estonia and repudiated Soviet legislation. People acted as human shields to protect radio and TV stations from the Soviet tanks. Uh, through these actions, Estonia regained its independence without any bloodshed. Wow. I like that one. Yeah, yeah. It's not a story I've I, I've known about in particular, and it's... Uh... Yeah, did you learn any of their songs? I haven't uh I haven't yet, but I'm I'm genuinely uh, interested. Um back in my my youth theater days, um we used to sing cuz it was a uh what what a, a left a left AF um <laughs> youth theater group and um there were a lot of uh, protest songs and sort of workers uh, type songs that that we would learn um uh, that just kind of not formally they just got passed down. We had this amazing sort of oral tradition where these songs at some point, years years and years ago, they might have formed part of a show, but in travelling between the venue and where we were camping, people would just start up one of these songs, and some of them are old medieval drinking songs, and some of these are protest songs. Your Daughters and Your Sons is, is one that I remember. Um, and people would, you know, someone who knew the song would just start up, and then you would learn that, and just just through hearing it, and then a year, you know, you'd come and do the the camp next year, and someone would start up that song, and you'd remember it, and you would just keep singing it, and thus like these traditional songs got passed down um, through teenagers, um, you know, and it's 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 wonderful, and um, yeah, and so I'm, I am I, I do have a bit of an interest in in digging into some of these. In some ways, it's almost a, a little bit of anarchism in and of itself, you know, that sort of that that sense of like. I think there's there this is obviously gets into a bit of like metaphorical territory here, but like the sort of the the process of a song building up in that way. Somebody knows a bit, somebody else jumps in, someone else is learning as they go. Like the improvisational quality of like a lot of music, a lot of creativity is sort of 
what do we do without leaders in, in a nutshell in some ways of like, like it's like a musical stone soup. Yeah. 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 You work with what you've got and people, people create something together, you know, and that to me is kind of like one of those metaphors of like, this, this is what society could be, you know, like we could be finding ways to sing songs together where somebody's starting in this one, but they listen and learn the next one and someone else is learning as they go and they don't jump in, but the next time they, they're, they're comfortable, comfortable singing, you know, <laughs> and like, that's, that's, that's how we could be doing so many things. It's a little bit like the, um, the, the, the geese, when they fly, um, in a, in a V formation, the, um, any, um, any goose can, um, decide instinctively to lead the V formation based on sort of what it, what it knows or understands or feels or whatever. And so you have this incredible sort of interplay and interchange of, of leaders swapping out and, and, you know, the next one just, just automatically kind of files in when it knows which way to go and, or it needs to take over. Like, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's wonderful. Yeah. And I think there's, yeah, even in that, that metaphor, like it's, it's, like it's a couple of simple rules that all the birds are following, you know, like they're, they're basically like, don't bump into the birds, the bird in front of you and don't bump into other things. <laughs> and like with those shared principles in mind, they're like, we can find our way anywhere. <laughs> uh, and that sort of that sense of like how little infrastructure people necessarily need in order to like, in order to be able to work well together. Oh, God, this is, uh, I'm loving this. Um, what is your, what's your number three? I'm going to go quite personal on this one. Um, I wasn't sure if I was going to bring this one up, but there was a point when I was living in London about f five years ago now, five and a half years ago, where I've been involved in housing organizing, uh, like working with people in communities fighting to stop gentrification in their neighborhoods, to demolitions of estates, people being kicked out of their homes, that kind of thing. Um, and got involved with a community in Barnet, not known as a hotbed of radicalism, generally speaking, uh, uh, that were fighting against all being kicked out of an estate called Sweet's Way uh, that they were living living on. Uh, and basically, like, at the point that a few of us who'd done a bit of housing organizing stuff before got there, there was about a dozen families left on an estate of about 150 homes. And people had been being dragged out of their house by bailiffs, families being sort of chucked out with everything they've got onto the streets kind of thing and being moved into temporary accommodation outside of London on the other side of the city, two hour bus rides to get their kids to school in the morning kinds of situations. And so the families that were left were just like, we, we can't have that happen to us. It's going to be too devastating to our lives. We will not stand for this. Um, I remember us having about 40 people, including former residents who'd come back because they were so committed to that space and where they were living in, having a little assembly in someone's living room in February, I think it was in 2015. And like those of us who'd done a bit of this kind of thing before kind of assumed like maybe, maybe they want some support if they're resisting evictions. We, we've done a lot of that. You get a group of people, you stand in the doorway, you send the bailiffs away by just peacefully standing there in numbers um, and had done quite a lot of that in other settings. Um, people were like, let's start taking over these homes. <laughs> let's take our, our homes back. <laughs> and a few of us were like, uh, yeah, yeah, we, we we could probably do that. Let's uh, let's give it a go. Panic a little bit on the side, like how the hell are we going to take a whole estate over again? What do we do? Uh, and uh, basically, a week later, after that first meeting, we took over the first empty 
building on the uh, first of the empty homes. So like after the developer had been kicking each family out, they'd sent contractors in to smash them up. These were perfectly livable houses. They would go in and smash the wastewater pipes, smash the porcelain, make them unlivable, even though just, even though they were perfectly good homes, um, because they wanted to keep people out of them in the process of the time it would take to demolish them and build luxury flats. There. So the, the definition of cutting your nose off to spite your face. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so what started with one home there that was initially going to be, we're like, we'll do it symbolically. We'll like hold it for two weeks to show off. Like these are good quality places. They don't need to be destroyed. Um, more and more people got involved. Uh, like families were coming back. Like the families that were there, like became very militant all of a sudden. Uh, and we started taking over more groups of squatters from around London got involved in a clear way that they were like, we want to support this. We want to make sh- we we've got the skills to make some of these buildings livable again. Um, we actually did something at one point that we called the people's regeneration show home where we took, took opened two of the buildings up <laughs> show they were in awful condition. They've been smashed to pieces. Like there was no good reason for it, but they've been smashed to pieces. We left one of them in the state that the the contractors had left it in. And then with a combination of found materials, some donations, I think we had about a few hundred quid worth of donations. We bought, needed to buy a little bit of stuff, but like we basically put a whole house back together, a two bedroom house back together in less than a week with volunteer labor collectively, turned it into a beautiful home and then opened it up to the community, to the media said like, come down, down. This is what the community can do. If you don't think these homes are livable, if you don't think that this is a, like that the this whole estate is viable, look what a community who cares about their homes with a, with a few hundred quid of budget and a lot of care can create. And uh, uh, yeah, it was a remarkable experience that in less than a week, like everybody came out of the woodwork. Commu- like people's parents, you discovered had like a history of like different kinds of building projects. They were getting involved. Someone, na- one neighbor came down and they're like, I have a bunch of old paint around. Like you can use, you can use this to do the repainting. Like someone's like, I know a cabinet maker, I'll bring them in. They can rebuild the kitchen cabinets and everything. Uh, and so we kind of developed this mix of different specialist skill sets, individuals just pitching in time, however they could. Um, and like, by a certain point, I think we had about 50 homes that we had started to regenerate in one way or another. And this is over the course of about a six month period. Um, various times the, the security guards would come and attack people and we, like groups would have to come and like push them away. But we sort of carved out an autonomous little village of like this, this estate, a sweet sway in North in Barnet for about six months where people were able to sort of, organize a lot of key aspects of day-to-day life because like even things like trash delivery had stopped happening on the estate and so like figuring out who was going to coordinate taking the garbage from the estate away to other places like down to yeah like rebuilding wastewater pipes and getting getting plumbing going in places again and getting electricity running and rebuilding homes like we were able to do a lot of it together you know and it's uh it was yeah it was never like I mean, it, this is not one that ends as a happy ending. Like eventually the Met police sent in like seven van loads of high court bailiffs and chopper brought in a chopper, a police chopper from Manchester for, to oversee a two day eviction operation of the whole place. Uh, but for six months, like a group of, a group of working class families, migrant families in North London found ways to 
stop them stop their homes being destroyed rebuild the the damage the utterly senseless damage that had been done by property developers who just wanted to make more expensive flats there uh and to to build community together at the same time and uh this that was probably one of my personal experiences of wow what we can do is remarkable. <laughs> like, I, I, I sometimes had a theoretical belief in a lot of these ideas before that. And that was the point where I was like, what's happening? Like it's happening all around me. I'm looking around me and there are people creating life, creating community, creating an infrastructure for a gr- group of people to live in one of like the most hyper-capitalist places in the world. <laughs> the seat of, yeah, absolutely. That is, that is wonderful. Um, I've got one to, um, to sort of not necessarily add to it, but um, to complement it perhaps uh, from the seventies, um, which is uh, the uh, squatting um, how sort of squatting increased and became more of a movement within the um, uh, within the inner city uh, in the late sixties uh, and then early seventies. So you had this housing shortage. Um, I also um, think about the, I don't know if you're familiar with the documentary, the TV documentary, Kathy Come Home, uh, mm, you know, yeah. from the, I think, again, late, late 60s, which um, f- uh, the day after it was released, um, Shelter, the, the homeless charity popped up, but that was a, that was a coincidence. However, there was another charity that formed as a direct result of, of this documentary. Uh, and the public outcry that, that followed, people were, were moved to, to want to do something about it. Um, at the height of um, homelessness and um, housing shortages uh, in in the seventies, there were thirty thousand people uh, living in squats in London uh, alone, and then I think fifty thousand in England. Um, and so, out of that, you had uh, the advisory service uh, for squatters, which uh, took over from the family squatting uh, advisory service and published the squatters' handbook, um, and also drafted um, a legal warning uh, to be used by squatters. Which I, I I love that idea of being able to empower people to to have you know a legal document to say you know I I, I I've got something that if this is the language you want to speak, then that's fine. I can speak that language. Yeah. Um, and uh, Jeremy Corbyn's uh, older brother, uh, Piers, uh, was, was part of the, the London Squatters Union, uh, which organised festivals uh, and housing for the homeless. Uh, side note, which we can get onto in, an, in, a, in another discussion at some point, that Piers, Piers Corbyn is um, he's a, he's an individual, Good, uh, not, a, not, a, not a savoury one, but... Right. I met him a couple times, and yeah, yeah, mm. definitely not someone who I uh, would ally with on almost anything, but does have a lot of squatting history. No, absolutely. Um, but yes, I, I thought I thought that was a, an interesting one. I think um, it shows that uh, I mean, out of squatting and and that kind of anarchy, we we ended up with. Uh, the band, which you 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 might laugh at, I don't know. Depends on how much you know. Uh, but my understanding is that's how uh, Chumbawamba um, became what they are. And um, those that know know that Chumbawamba are in, uh, actually are this incredible um, sort of folk band, if, if nothing else. I mean, their, their last couple of albums were these sort of modern folk songs, uh, which as they they did get knocked down and 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 back up again you're never gonna keep them down (laughs) yeah um it was a subtle subtle anarchist message in there yeah yeah indeed oh god absolutely Um, (laughs) they also had you know wonderful like um i mean the album the boy bands of one it's got so many songs about work and and about what it is to work and there's this you know wonderful song about a waitress who um 
who is just so tired of the subtle ways that people um, take their frustrations out on her that she's she has her little moment where she spits in people's food um <laughs> just you know and, and uh i wish that they'd sack me and send me to sleep uh or leave me to sleep which is a wonderful song and that came out of this um band that formed in a squat um you know there's there's these beautiful flowers that grow out of out of the soil um and so yeah i'm gonna to add that one I, I love that you brought in advisory service for squatters because they're still around today and like some close friends of mine are quite involved in in them still and they were they were really active parts of the sweet sway occupation in fact and so like some of the legal battles that w- that were happening alongside the collective fight in the for fight for homes that was happening in in the neighborhood in barnet there uh there were there were I mean, advisory service for squatters, if those haven't picked it up, is ASS, uh, uh, which is a little, little nod to the kind of, kind of attitudes, cheeky anarchism that's <laughs> kind of uh, underpins that, uh, that particular group. But the ASS were working away behind the scenes, some really remarkable people finding some very creative uses for the law mm. to, to keep some of the like keep the bailiffs at bay basically for six or seven months while that was happening and so that was like definitely a parallel element of what was going on and very much a kind of again like a community driven people coming up with like the law was not intended to be used in these ways but like we'll find ways i mean it was it was intended to crush us in a lot of ways and so finding finding the loopholes and finding the 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 little the side doors that you can use to kind of create something that actually serves the people in some meaningful way uh was a really important part of that movement and is an important part of a lot of movements at different moments cheat codes for the legal system (laughs) (laughs) yeah absolutely down down left right left right (laughs) sue what's number four for you um let's zoom out again uh and go to rojava in syria so northeast syria kurdish like kurdish people would call it kurdistan uh though kurdistan has never really been recognized by many of the states of the world um but as the Assad regime in Syria, I mean, we've all heard about the war in Syria uh, over over a number of years now. Um, but basically what happened was as a lot of the Assad regime's infrastructure collapsed, uh, the Kurds basically started developing a system of self-governance. Now, you wouldn't probably strictly call this anarchism. Uh, there's some level of like what people might call governmental structures in place, but it's basically completely from the ground up so every every small village makes its own decisions if there are decisions that affect it and a series of other villages they'll go to a slightly bigger forum and figure some of those things out together but the default is that everything happens close to where it's where like the decisions happen close to where the action happens and when necessary and when it's beneficial to different groups they can make decisions in bigger spaces together um and what's sort of interesting about this historic, like from a kind of anarchist perspective, there has been a Kurdish freedom fighters movement g- going back decades um, uh, called the PKK, led by a guy named Abdullah Ocalan, who was sort of a guerrilla Marxist for many years, like fighting against the various governments that were that were trying to crush the Kurdish people uh, in that part of the world. And he'd been sitting in a Turkish prison for for many years and do, was doing a lot of reading and it was like, 
I don't know if this version of Marxism is going to get us free. Uh, and he read some books by a guy named Marie Bookchin, who was broadly a sort of an anarchist thinker from the Lower East Side in New York, um, who had sort of developed a theory of communalism, which was broadly sort of like anarchism with a bit more sort of built in sort of low-level governmental structure. So uh, Abdullah Oshalan's reading these books from this, like, New York anarchist in this Turkish prison, and is like, I think we need to change how we're organizing ourselves if we want the Kurdish people to be free, and develops this whole sort of alternative model that's essentially what's playing out now in in Rojava, the area of Syria, um, based on decisions happening as close to the ground as possible and people like working with other communities when they need to and when it's beneficial to do so. And so like you've got this system that's kind of emerged since about 2012 um, where 400,000 or so people, I believe, are living under these like living in these like self-created conditions. They've also been like about the most effective fighting force against ISIS in the area. Like they were probably like these self-organized like armies the YPG and YPJ, they're called. Uh, YPJ uh, being all women's militias uh, fighting against fighting against ISIS um, have been incredibly successful and were have been one of the main reasons why ISIS have been kept out, have been crushed in that area. Um, and so you have this kind of remark, and alongside that, you have like a deeply like environmentalist approach being like in the core of how those communities are organizing. You have a, an active approach to gender liberation and like women's liberation happening in those spaces. You have like transformative collective justice processes where like, where communities are not working on a model of punishment. They're sort of saying, how can the people who've done harm address the harm that's been done in a way that's satisfactory for the community? Um, and so this whole series of really radical sort of alternative, more collective, non-top-down systems that are being practiced community by community in the in the midst of what's been a war zone for years. Uh, and they, they've been un, under attack both by ISIS as well as by Turkey, who's always wanted to wipe the Kurds off the map uh, as a state. Um, and But they've been very clear, like, the answer to our problems is no longer creating a state. We don't want we don't want Kurdistan to be its own government. <clears throat> we want to have a system where everyone can work work together. And they're like, in each of our communities, there's Kurds, there's Arabs, there's there's Christians, there's many different groups that that live in harmony together and all, are all part of those democratic processes, those direct democratic pr processes. And they've been been creating this in the midst of a, a total war zone for years and years now. Uh, and most of the world has no idea that this is this is even happening. <laughs> it's still on, still ongoing right now. <laughs> That's remarkable, and something uh, about which I remain supremely ignorant. Um, so I'm uh, I'm I'm very pleased to be uh, uh, to be given um, a bit of an insight into that. Well, little plug there. I worked on a documentary a few years ago on uh, that was a BBC thing called Accidental Anarchist. Um, side story about a former diplomat who quit the UK government over the Iraq war and was completely disillusioned by the systems he'd been a part of and decided he was an anarchist. Uh, his name's Karn Ross. Uh, and so the film kind of looks at some of these examples all over the world, but there's quite a bit on Rojava and like the, what's been going on there, the direct democratic experiment that's been building there since 2012. With that, I, I feel a sense of optimism. Um, I'm going to, 
go with the May 68 protests in France. Mm-hmm. Good choice. Um, <laughs> uh, so in February, um, there was an attempt uh, to form uh, effectively a coalition between the French communists and the socialists uh, to oust, uh, to get rid of uh, Charles de Gaulle. Uh, and then in May, protests uh, at the University of Paris uh, led to uh, that university being shut down. So uh, students then were refusing to leave. Um, the conflict escalated, as you might imagine, uh, and the government's uh, heavy-handed dealings um, sort of gave sympathy to the the, the protesters. Um, factory workers then struck, uh, were striking, uh, I guess, in, in sympathy. There were calls for a new government. Uh, de Gaulle fled. Um, the government collapsed. The re- uh, but then a, a revolution was um, was prevented. Uh, and the slogan, uh, pave uh, la plage, uh, which I'm definitely mispronouncing, um, which is under paving stones, the beach, uh, came from this idea of, of protesters ripping up uh, paving slabs and finding sand um, underneath them. <laughs> That's a beautiful image. It definitely just kind of like the sort of yeah, you can take a metaphor of, out of that of like, what, what, what are we covering up? What are the things, what are the, the beautiful things that we have plastered over in one way or another that we, we can discover if we start to peel those, th- that infrastructure out of yeah. the way? What is, what is the, the world that we've built our new world on top of and are hiding and are suppressing? And yeah. Yeah, beautiful. Uh, okay. So what is your number five? So number five, I'm going to tie it back to number one a little bit. Uh, there's a occupied factory in Greece uh, that has been, uh, it's called Viome. It's in Thessaloniki. Uh, and it is a place that has been like in that same period of time, as you talking about with the indignados, like European government, like European economies collapsing. Um, the Greek economy collapsed much like in Argentina, the bosses at Viome, which was called something different at the time, uh, got out of the country and the workers said, well, like, Let's take this over ourselves and let's do it ourselves. Um, actually, it wasn't even quite as simple as that. They, they, they occupied it and weren't really sure what to do. And then someone there uh, had a, some connections with some of these occupied factories in Argentina and said, let's see if we can find a way to bring some couple of the workers from the Xanon Ceramics Factory in, in Buenos Aires over to Thessaloniki to share a little bit of what they did. So you kind of have this connection where like somebody knew about them. And again, this ties into some of those connections of the internet kind of thing and how the internet lets things spread. But a couple of workers from, from Buenos Aires flew to Thessaloniki. They spent some time with the workers, explained how they'd taken over their factory, how they made decisions together, how they like changed what they did to, to be more fitting to what they wanted to be doing in that factory space. And then the workers at VMA said, Hell yeah, let's do that. <laughs> uh, and so, like, meanwhile, they're fighting off attacks from, like, the bosses trying to take over the factory again, uh, even though they'd, like, left them for months without pay. Like, they kind of, there was huge backlogs and the workers were like, we're taking the factory. This is, you, you owe us, so this is what we're taking. <laughs> um, uh, they're, they're involved in legal battles to try and hold on to the factory space. But meanwhile, the community is coming out and supporting them because... The, the families of the workers are like, we need jobs still. We need to be able to, to, to support ourselves. The economy is in the pits. Um, why not let these workers just do it themselves? And so the community would come out and build the blockades and keep the, keep the eviction attempts at bay. But also the workers were like, the community has been so core to building up 
like our ability to do this to our ability to start to work here what are we going to do with uh what are we going to do with this space now and so they had an assembly with people from the community coming together and saying what could we do with this um and the workers were like, well, we don't want to use that. We were making industrial adhesives before that it was toxic crap. Like it was awful to work with. We were always having rashes. We were ill from it. We definitely don't want to do that anymore. Mm-hmm. And the, the neighbor people from the neighborhood were like, yeah. And it made all this horrible smog come out of like, like we were breathing crap all the time as a result of this place. So yeah, we don't want you doing that either. They went through a process. They decided let's, uh, let's make affordable, eco-friendly cleaning products, household cleaning products made of olive oil and vinegar. <laughs> and, uh, and so they start, they completely flipped the infrastructure of the factory in order to do something that was healthier for the workers, better for the local environment, uh, addressed an immediate local need, um, was economically sustainable enough to create jobs for them as workers. Uh, and they've been doing it ever since. Um, and so like the connect from this connection to Argentina, the ideas that had sort of spread there actually like being able to, in very practical ways, take root in Greece. And since then in many other places, like I went there in uh, 2016 and there were, uh, they, they were hosting a conference of occupied factories from around Europe. And there was, there was workers from, I think about eight different countries that were there who have done similar things since. Uh, and they were, they they were all doing this vast array of things from like that they were things that we assumed you would have needed like corporate infrastructure in place to do before that people had just found ways to learn to do themselves and uh yeah remarkable example still ongoing today they're still fighting regular eviction attempts usually more in the courts attempts to auction off the land that they're on things like that uh but alongside they are growing expanding when i went there the second time i guess it was just last summer like they were hiring a few new workers they were in a sustainable enough place to bring a couple new people into the co-op um and building links constantly and something that one of them said to me that really stuck with me um was basically like people always ask us what we can do what they can do to support us like what would solidarity look like what would it look like to support vma and they're like do start your own occupy your own workplace do it where you are the more of us the more our networks exist where we can communicate trade with each other learn from each other that's the most important thing we need right now is more more people doing things like that where they are and i think that was just such a like powerful example of like the revolution isn't happening over there somewhere like this is like we each make it where we are and then we find the other people who are doing it in other places and then we turn that into like gradually we become bigger we become bigger like scale is happening through a bunch of people doing something very local and relevant to to the people around them to the space that they're in and then finding others and supporting each other well my my final is um it's a bit of a bonus one really it's uh it doesn't equate to any of the things we've discussed um but i wanted to bring it up just because it speaks to um well it's it spoke to me in in 2009 when it happened um this is something very very different and it is the rage against the machine beating x factor uh beating the x factor single for christmas number one in 2009 <laughs> yeah, excellent uh this was uh, organized i think by by a gentleman who um who yeah was was just fed up of the fact that uh we our christmas number ones were being decided for us essentially um the songs that we were going to celebrate for, for for that period were basically being handed to us by Simon Cowell and Simon the the other Simon uh, in in pop, um, 
and he thought, you know, I think I think we can um, we can do something about this. And I, I, a few years previously, I think I'm right in saying that uh, the JCB song by Nisloppy, I think, beat out uh, the the then um, X Factor or, or whatever equivalent uh, as as it was then. Um, but this was much more of a a, a, an active protest and an active listen. All right, we've had enough now of uh, these, you know, the, these particular songs. Uh, I think it's time that we uh, we demonstrated a little bit more. I don't know, like just put a middle finger up, and, and I like that. It's very benign, but it made me smile. Well, I think I've I've made a point partly because of the perceptions of anarchism to focus on the like what are the constructive things we're building up in, as an alternative to all all of the like the crap that we, people are living in the world right now, but never underestimate the value of that like middle finger up. Like you often do have to be tearing down something that's crap in order to make the space to build something that's up and, and like build something that's better. And I think like, it's not always the case. I think there's often the space to build things alongside one another, but there's a lot of elements of the, the status quo that we need to really just like tell them where to go in one way or yeah, another. Or you know? question and just go like, are we happy with, with this? Is this what we wanted? And maybe every now and again we go, Oh no, it isn't. Let's, <laughs> so let's do something. Not X factor. So this is Liam Barrington Bush, um, and uh, yeah, I I, um, I enjoyed this episode a great deal, and sort of firming up my ideas about anarchism um, because it's one of those where I'd had a sense of I kind of thought I knew what anarchism was or or had a bit of an idea of it, and it was nice to hear someone who knows what they're talking about uh, actually explain it and give really concrete examples, and I found this really. I don't know, it, it, it's uplifting and it just, it brought a different side to political unrest, if you like, for, for want of a better word, because that's so often, we talk about unrest, um, and, and that's so often a negative term. And, and what we're really talking about is, is ways to legitimately overthrow the status quo or, or find ways for everyday people to overcome systems and then you know build their own systems that work for them and i i, I love stuff like that and so i i was really um yeah, I was really buoyed uh, by this episode. Um, thank you to Stuart Parker um, for uh, his production help on this episode. Uh, and, of course, links and uh, and show notes and everything else you will find at listenvypod.com. Uh, if you've got any thoughts uh, on the episode or any feedback, listenvypod is where you will find us on Twitter and Facebook, uh, facebook.com slash listenvypod. We are listenvy on Instagram. And then uh, listenvy at gmail.com is the email address if you want to uh, get in touch and uh, discuss if you've been affected by any of the issues raised in this episode. <laughs> uh, and speaking of that, um, I know things is grim right now. Um, the UK is in its third national lockdown. Uh, American politics is on fire. Um, people are in pain um all all over the place um and i kind of just wanted to say that y- you can and should when you need to ask for help um ask for help when you need it um you you keep good company um whether you agree with the things that we've talked about in this episode or not or whatever like you you for you you keep good company of course you do um and so the people who are around you who love you are not going to turn you away um if you ask for their help so uh if you need help um 
for whatever reason, at whatever time, you know, go and ask for it. And uh, as I've said on on my um, my other little show um, from last year, um, company man, like. I, I'm here, <laughs> you know, if you, have, if you ever just want to uh, complain. Now, of course, like, you might look at this show, listen to this, um, and, and either it's escapism, uh, escapism or you're like, Mark, you know, get, give it a rest, mate, all right? We, we know what's going on. We don't need you getting all wide-eyed and, and um, Jerry Springer's last thought about it. So just, you know, wind your neck in. Um, but to the first thing, the escapism thing, I kind of think that's a cop-out sometimes, um, especially when things were happening last year with, with um, Black Lives Matter. So many podcasts were just going on with business as normal uh, on a week where people were really thinking about, you know, maybe let's not put something out. Um, let's give opportunity for other voices to be around. And and people were saying, well, you know, we're going to put our show out and we hope it's escapism for you. And it's like, no, this is an industry show about, like, podcasting. That doesn't apply. Like, uh, it's no <laughs> you don't get to say that with everything and so I, I i always take that with a pinch of salt and so um yeah we we don't necessarily have a responsibility to to speak truth to power all the time but i think you know we want to acknowledge things when when they're around and and this medium gives us that opportunity so uh, i hope you i hope you you can indulge me um for doing that so uh, next week, then, we are talking top five Brummies. Uh, so that's top five people from Birmingham. Uh, as you may remember, right back early in the season, uh, in season one in 2019, uh, Tom Clabon and I uh, did our thing um, on top five Birmingham bands. And so you might see some crossover um as as you would imagine but um yeah it's it, that was a really fun episode um so uh yeah perhaps if you know nothing about birmingham you might learn some things and then you might learn why birmingham isn't necessarily always on the map but uh it was a really fun episode and i think we've got a really good list so uh yeah um stay subscribed listenvypod.com um if you are not already subscribed that is the place to go to do so if you don't know what subscribing to a podcast means it just means that on your iphone or your android whenever there is a new episode of the podcast it appears on your phone straight away and you haven't got to go and search it out so um your phone has a podcasts app. It's called Podcasts. Uh, it will either be called Podcasts or Google Podcasts. And I think even on the Android phone, it's just called Podcasts. So you can find List Envy there and subscribe. Uh, just just hit that button. It's completely free. And it just means that when new episodes arrive, your phone will automatically gobble them up and then you can play them. And uh, new episodes are out every Tuesday. So uh, if you like what you've heard so far, that is is what you can do. So let us crack back on then with Liam Barrington-Bush and myself building our top five list of moments we took things over together. Um, so I think we've got, we've got a, a, a remarkable list here with some overlap, which, uh, which is lovely. I think ev- you know, even in not, not necessarily the specific stories, but I think there are definitely thematic uh, overlaps. Um, so I, you know, out of order. I think I've got the the singing revolution, the uh, Indignados movement, uh, paving stones, the beach, uh, inner London uh, squatting in the seventies, and of course, Rage Against the Machine. Uh, and you've got the Argentinian uh, Occupy Factory movement, the People's Uprising in Oaxaca, uh, Sweetsway, um, the uh, Rojava um, sort of devolution, and then the uh, Greek Factory uh, occupation. Um, I wanted to float a potential top five by you um, and see how you feel about this. Okay. <laughs> so from five to one, I've, I've got number five, uh, uh, the singing revolution, because I just think that's, there's, there's beauty in that. Um, number four, uh, Rojava. Number three, I think there are stories of 
um, of, of residential squatting as opposed to the sort of factory occupation. The residential stuff, I think, from the late 60s, early 70s onwards to today, from what you were talking about in 2015, uh, I think I think there's there's a tradition there that um, that I wanted to sort of honour, and I think we can combine some of that. I like that. Bit of a cheeky move. Get, we, we can get two into yeah, one yeah. there. Um, yeah. I'm going to do that again in a minute. Um, uh, number two, I think uh, the the people's uprising in in Oaxaca uh, from 2006, and then number one, I've gone with again the combination of uh, the factory uh, uprisings um, because they are linked, as you said. Your your numbers one and five, uh, the Argentine and and the the Greek um, uh, occupations and. Uh, uh, and what can uh, arise as of those? What do you? How do you feel about that list? Or would you? Are there any adjustments you'd like to make? It's a good list. I um, fine list. <laughs> I feel like that sort of under the paving slabs is uh, uh, the beach or whatever, whatever the one from Paris '68 was. I feel like there's maybe I'm just really clinging to that kind of as a uh, as a an image. Uh, that captures so many of the things that run through these stories. Uh, but I kind of feel like I want to get it in there. Yep. And, and there's part of me that also just wants to get Rage Against the Machine in there because, I mean, why not? Yeah, Rage Against the Machine should be a part of almost any top five list. You just got to uh, – but I may, I may let them go on this occasion. I mean, no, like, I hope he'll forgive me. Uh, but uh, – uh, what could we what could we switch up for the paving slabs? I I mean I, I I can I can lose the the singing revolution if we if we have to. I think I think the other four, um, they are so fundamental. I, I don't and I, foundational. I don't want to combine them any more than we have, and I certainly don't want to lose any of them. Um, because there's this there's such beauty, especially in one and two, and and I think three is just an ongoing, an ongoing thing. Um. As is as is number four, really, with the, the stuff in Road River. So, yeah, let's let's swap out then um, the the singing revolution. Um, we can we can we can have a spiritual a spiritual number six in in sort of musical revolution. Um, sounds like a reggae band from the eighties. Uh, so we are going for uh, under paving stones the beach then to the Paris sixty uh, eight uh, protest. Mm, yep. Um, so. With that, then, we have Paris 68, Rojava, Squatting, Oaxaca, and Factory Occupations. Ooh. Liam, do you consent to this list? I, I fully consent to this list. We, I think we've reached consensus. So uh, as we wrap up then, I had um, – there's a, a nice one that I was alerted to, uh, which is the, uh, as an honourable mention, the mass trespass of um, Kinder Scout uh, – which was a, an organised protest um, by three groups of, of ramblers, um, which were highlighting the the fact that they were being denied access to uh, areas of open country within England and Wales. The one that I had as my initial number one, but there wasn't really much of a takeover. It was it was just an act of protest and and something that I remember being stirred by. And it's earlier this year, uh, which was the um, the taking down of the of the statue of um, of, of Colston. Yeah. I moved to Bristol the week before that, and uh, and and got to see it live. <gasps> Remarkable! Yeah, it was a magic moment. You can't actually see it, obviously, in audio form, but I have have a poster of that was made by a local artist just to my right uh, of the image of uh, the, the statue of a black woman that that was 
built by a local artist and put up on that plinth after Colston was taken down. Uh, just just to my right here. Oh, superb. Um, yeah, that's that's what a wonderful bit of kismet. Um, so yes, those were my sort of uh, my honourable mentions. Um, were there any that you sort of wanted to talk about, but but essentially just didn't manage to make your final cut? I mean, there are there are so many. I think those are definitely my like my top ones. I, I like that you brought in the sort of the the ramblers and the sort of mass trespass because that's a good good bit of bit of anarchism that didn't quite that sort of fits with some of the occupation stuff, but takes it into like a wider sense of like the privatization of land and get, and challenging that as a concept. Um, I mean, there are so many forms of radical workers cooperatives. There are so many forms of people who've taken over housing and workplaces around the world. Um, I mean, I think, yeah, I think these are the sort of the, like I picked out a few that were definitely some quite stark and really sort of cin- cinematic imagery of like, of the, the factory takeover or the, uh, or the like w- Oaxaca commune. Um, but I think, yeah, there are, um, there are so many there are so many versions that are a bit more every day mm-hmm. and i guess that that's the kind of thing that can, that i would would want to make sure wouldn't get lost in some of these like these are kind of quite impressive stories but like people form workers co-ops every day like people like people are squatting homes every day um and like these things are happening at a quite like i don't want to say mundane level cuz they're challenging some of the core foundations of the systems we live in uh but they're happening in quite everyday ways still and i guess that's one of the things that to me makes it separates anarchism out from most other political ideologies is you can do it where you are wherever you are whenever you are uh you you can find a way to sort of collectively take control of a little bit of life that has previously been like something that you have been beholden to in one way or another and the people around you have been beholden to so i think like rather than any specific other examples i guess i want to just really draw out the like the everydayness of it and that it's something that we can do where we are and we don't need to wait till the revolution comes or wait till our great leader has been elected or what anything else uh we can we can get started in so many spaces and make it happen on that note i have a potentially difficult question and i feel i I want to ask it it's not exactly devil's advocate but it is it is a question that there's a bit of my brain wants to ask um and i hope you'll forgive what might seem a slightly i don't know patrician question go on then a lot of what we've talked about has this energy of um of of overturning of 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 revolution of um destroying the status quo or um being able to you know erect a new uh enact a new system um that has a momentum that has a um a sort of snowball gathering, gathering uh, more snow and gathering pace kind of, uh, kind of feel to it. What happens when that initial fist clenched in the air sort of energy works out, uh, it sort of, it dissipates and you wake up and it's Tuesday and you're still sort of in this world. Like how does that continue? Um, once that initial fervor has sort of, you know, died. I guess the things that like, I guess drawing on my own experience with Sweet Sway and other places, uh, as well as things that I've heard from people in Oaxaca, things I've heard from the workers at VOMA, like a lot of what happens after that is quite mundane. (laughs) Um, Like, it's like, like I said, like a lot of day-to-day anarchism is like, 
how is food distribution being done? And like, how, who's like, do we have sufficient clinics set up to address the health needs of the community? Or like, there's a lot of stuff that some people would initially be like, that sounds really boring. I don't know if I want to do that. <laughs> um, but there's a flip side to it that I think like someone at VMA, one of the workers at VMA, I remember saying to me, um, which was like, having that sense of like, you're in control every day. You're a part of like, you're shaping <clears throat> your world, your reality day by day that like, there's a power in that, that like overrides the mundanity of like figuring out collective work rotas and sitting in long consensus meetings. Like <clears throat> that, that sense of I have agency and I'm part of something uh, is a really life-giving force. <laughs> and like that, if you look at it from, from an out, the outside, you could be like, right they're they're making soap how like that must get boring sometimes but like what all of those workers who i talked to at vma were so passionate about what they were doing and it's not necessarily soap was the thing that they were passionate about what they were passionate about was that they were like we are creating our realities together day by day by day <laughs> and the life so, that you you come home to at the end of the day when you're finished making the soap um you're building that society that you get to live in once the soap making is done for the day it's it's yeah uh, yeah I, I i think i i get that and it's like yeah what what happens what you return to i guess not return to but what you create is this new just again it's just tuesday yeah and this is our new tuesday <laughs> we get out yeah. and some of us go and and, and make soup some of us uh, soap some of us go and make soup as well um yeah. and then some of us go and and work in our new uh newly sort of created uh, town halls and uh, and spaces of 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 government where we we figure out how to govern our society and someone else makes the tea like it just life continues but as this new um I don't know. Like it's almost, um, it's, it's the same song, but just a key change. <laughs> yeah. And it's a key change. That is all the difference, you know, like it's a, a key change. That's the difference between like, if I was making soap for a boss, I would probably just feel drained and wrecked by the end of the day. Whereas like, if I'm doing that in the context of something that feels like it matters, then, then all of those, those, day-to-day -day mundane actions of like even the commute to and from the workplace kind of thing you're doing that as part of something that you care about and believe in and that's something that i think we just so assume we're not going to have in most parts of our lives <laughs> um and that yeah when i've when i've experienced that and when i've been been with people who are experiencing that or seen that happen like it's hard to you can't really quantify what a, what a, what a key change that is <laughs> because it's a night and day difference you could look at it a snapshot of it and it looks like someone's doing the same thing they would have been doing before but it couldn't be further from it <laughs> so i'm uh, and and hopefully the 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 listener is feeling um inspired um what what is our next step what should we read what should we do where do we go to put this uh, inspiration into action oh um i mean i guess the fundamental thing that I, I start with is the same thing that the vma folks said of like when people come to them like what do we do to support you they're like make it happen yourself 
Think about it wherever you are. What is the thing that you and the people around you could do together uh, that could create some more collective control over the lives that you're living together that could redistribute some of the power that we're used to having held over us into the, into the spaces and the communities that we're in. It could be workplaces. It could be housing. It could be education. It could be how we grow food and make food. Like all of these things are fertile ground for, for this kind of change, you know? Um, and yes, like there's some that will hack. You can do more innocuous, like that you can do without necessarily having to come directly face to face with challenging like the, the infrastructure of the state <laughs> there's some things that you will end up being in conflict with at, at times <laughs> um like i think at some point you will always end up in conflict with the status quo if you start to create things like this but i think there's a lot of steps that often can happen that where people are building the collective infrastructure of like how do we want to make decisions together? How do we want to take care of each other? How do we want to feed each other? Like, like making those kinds of decisions together can often at least start from a place where, uh, where you don't have to be ready for like to go to war as the, as your first step. Um, so, I mean, beyond that, there's lots of, lots of important, um, like stuff out there. I mentioned before David Graeber who passed away this year, his, his writing has definitely been, a place that I've found a lot of inspiration at different points. Uh, there's a book about Oaxaca, uh, in 2006 called teaching rebellion, um, which is a collective a collection of firsthand accounts of people who were a part of it, about 30 different stories of individuals who found played some role in that, that period where that they took over the city. Uh, and it's an amazing, amazing, uh, collection as far as like just the, the diversity of stories and people that are in that, uh, talking about their experiences, uh, and a personal plug, I'll, well, not even personal, but I mentioned this, this film before accidental anarchist is a good kind of intro point. If you're feeling a bit skeptical, still not totally sure that this is an actually a viable, viable option. Um, uh, it's available on BBC iPlayer. Uh, I think still, um, <clears throat> not a hundred percent sure of that, but you know, it's somewhere on the, you can watch it on, on Vimeo, but there are, Yeah. There's lots out there, and uh, one of those things. Speaking of books, uh, is your is your own uh, writing on the subject? Um, yeah, I mean, this is, goes back a little while now. I wrote it in Oaxaca actually while I was living there, um, and it's a slightly different take on it. It's about how do we connect the ideas of self organization, collective process, and anarchism with, say, some of the more top down structures of social change that we are used to. That could be trade unions, NGOs, charities, uh, the kinds of institutions that were used to being run in much the same way we're used to most institutions in society being run. Uh, what would it look like to bring some of these more collective bottom up ideas into those spaces? Uh, I would say over the years, I, there's elements of it. I've become more cynical about there's elements, elements of it that I still, I think eh, it seems pretty solid. <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, it's called anarchists in the boardroom. Um, there are not that many print copies around these days, but you can definitely, you can still get an ebook on my website, which is more like people.org. And uh, where else can people um, follow you and, and find out more about your work? I'm involved in a bunch of different things these days, but like the only thing that's sort of an individually me thing really is Twitter uh, at, at hack of all trades uh, is where you can find me and where I sort of usually link to whatever random bits and bobs I'm working on. Uh, so yeah, that, that would probably be the main one. Liam Barrington Bush, thank you so much for being on List Envy. Right on. Thanks, Mark. It's been a lot of fun. 